happy holidays and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca and I am joined here again today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to start us off by telling us all about the case of the Jonestown Massacre and Journey will be educating us on the science of forensic toxicology and how it played an instrumental role in the case. Um, I would like to note before we start that we do have a listener's discretion as there are brief descriptions of physical assault as well as detailed descriptions of suicides and child deaths. Um, so without further ado, because this is a very prolific and interesting case, Journey, I, or sorry, Nicole, I would love to hear all about the case of the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah, for sure. So because the massacre itself only like transpired over the events of like I guess over the time frame of a couple hours essentially I thought I'd kind of do like a backstory of who Jim Jones was and like what kind of led him to where he was at that time so he was born in rural Indiana um, in a city called Crete on May 13th 1931 to Lynetta Putnam and John Henry Jones So he was born James Warren Jones, but I guess Jim or Jimmy is a typical nickname of James, which I didn't know. Um, So he was often referred to as Jim or Jimmy. Um, So his mom was a bit of an eccentric lady. Uh, She like the reports from her and her own personal reports like varied a lot in just the content of it all. So at one point, like, stories are her name was Lunette at another time her name was Lynette but then she went as Lynetta for the most of the time and then she would be like mad that her husband's family called her Lynetta and she was like well that's not my name but anyways oops I keep hitting my mic um she was an interesting woman she had two husbands before meeting um John Henry Jones And so when she married John, he was actually old enough to practically be her father at the time. Um, He was a disabled war veteran, and she was the type of woman that wanted security in her life in the sense of, I need someone with money who can support me, and I can just do whatever I want in my life because I have this security. So she thought marrying John would give her all of that, and that was um, the exact opposite honestly um he did have some money in his family like his family was kind of well off but he himself only had um pension checks basically coming in from the military and aside from that he was just not in the position to do any work on the farm that was gifted to them by his family um he tired easily he just was not he just couldn't do anything Um, So she also wasn't the most well-liked woman in their small town. She made other women quite uncomfortable. Um, She kind of did stuff that wouldn't seem out of the normal today. Like she would smoke in public, not in the private of her home. I guess that was seen as a big no-no. And she cursed whenever she felt like it, no matter who was in earshot, which was quite often. And so the town that they had eventually moved to was a dry town so they had no alcohol and I guess it was the time around like it was just after the depression so around the um prohibition times I guess um 
John, so the father, became a frequent at the pool house, but there they only sold, like, coffee and pop. So it's not like they could provide him any alcohol, but he soon came to be known as, like, the town alcoholic. So I don't know where he was getting his booze or, like, who he was getting it from, but that was just kind of, like, the reputation he gained for himself. I don't know if it was just because he was very... Like, he stumbled all the time with his condition. He just wasn't very cognitively there and they just assumed he was drunk um but he came to be known as the town drunk and um jim jones would later say that actually lynetta as well they would say that um he was quite an abusive man but all of the other accounts they said that it didn't make sense because in his condition like he physically could not hurt or harm an individual to that extent which I thought was interesting. Not to say that he couldn't, because I'm sure he could find a way, but it was just very unlikely people thought that he could actually do that. And uh, on top of that, they weren't very present in his childhood. So he wasn't, the father wasn't able to do a lot of the chores or work around the house. So again, he would be at the pool hall. And the mom obviously had to make money for the family. So she was often away working. And the rules that she just had in place for Jim just like didn't really make sense so he wasn't allowed in the house when she wasn't there so even when he was done school he wasn't allowed inside if she was still at work so he would just be like roaming the streets and he just came to be known as like I don't know the Jones boy and all of the neighbors kind of like took him in and fed him because he was always hungry apparently um So that was also great for him. And while he was growing up, he took a liking to all different types of religions, though. So it was said um, that he would go church hopping. So on Sundays, he would go to multiple different services, like leave midway through, catch another one, leave. And he would do that every week. Um, So he was just very fascinated by religion and he was especially attracted to the charismatic christian traditions and i guess in school he used to preach in the forest by himself like he got caught a couple times just like standing on stumps and giving these like extravagant sermons to no one um and he used to conduct animal funeral services like just by himself but also in the school playground like during recess he would try and get the kids in to accompany him for these funerals and in high school um the school's football team had him give a mock funeral service for the other team that they were going to play at the pep rally and students had said that he like had a flair for the dramatics and he actually shocked a lot of them with how like into it he got and how he delivered this like, this rival team into their mass grave, essentially. Like, it was just, it was such an odd concept to me when I was reading about it. Um, That's actually super funny. Like, how savage of the team to be like, uh, yeah, we're gonna hold your funeral because we're gonna kick your butt so bad. Right? Like, we used to have Friday night football, but we never had, like, funerals for them. Like, that just, I don't know. That seems crazy. I love it. Um, and so at 17, he started working as a night orderly at the Reed Memorial Hospital in this town called Richmond. 
in Indiana. So Richmond was more so like the the nicer city aside from where he currently was in Lynn. Um, and so he was trying to save up money to go to college and whatnot. And this is where he met Marcelin Baldwin. She was a senior in her nursing, um, sorry, she was a senior nursing student at the same hospital. And she had to, um, I guess a patient, a pregnant mother had passed away. So she had to prep the body and she needed help from a night orderly. And she had met um, Jim, excuse me, through that. And she said like he was very caring, like he was very respectful, took time to like mourn the woman, um, which I thought was interesting. Like he definitely seemed odd, but from what I've read, he seemed like an okay individual for the most part. Like what he put out at least seemed decent. Um, And so... Even though Marcelin was three and a half years older than Jim, they grew fond of each other and they actually married each other on June 12th, 1949, when Jim would have only been 18 and she was about 21. Um, so it wasn't great. Like, it wasn't the perfect marriage, but um, so long after they moved in together, Jim just decided to tell Marcelin that he didn't believe in her God at all. And so I believe she was a Methodist, like she, that was the church she went to. She went to a Methodist church. Um, He said he didn't believe in her God at all. And um, years later in Jonestown, I'll get into Jonestown, but he would recount that quote. He said, I started devastating God. I tore that mother trucker, but it was uncensored, to shreds and laid him out to rest, end quote. So he just didn't see the, like, he didn't believe that, he he would be so cruel to human beings and create such an unjust world like he said that like your god can't be loving and i don't know just the way that he worded it he just said your god is not right my god is um so that caused a little bit of tension between them but he was never the one to budge on anything or compromise so marceline just was like okay like whatever you say, um, which wasn't very great. Um, I do want to say side note too, there is a lot of religious content in this. Um, I don't mean to say anything offending. If I do, um, I'm not very religious. So if I say something wrong, please just let me know afterwards. I just, it doesn't come to me like that. Um, But anyways, he took particular interest in advocating for racial equality and integration at the time, which is very surprising. And it wasn't common at all where he was living and during the time period. Um, So in the early 50s, he had heard a sermon preached in the Methodist church that emphasized loving everyone, no matter their race. And that really like stuck with him. So he decided he was going to become a Methodist minister and was hired on as a student pastor at a Methodist church. So I take back what I said about Marceline being Methodist. I don't believe she was. It would have been something else. Um, But anyways, they both kind of became Methodist at this point. And while he was still a student pastor, he also spoke at um, Pentecostal churches, churches during that time. So he never, like, he didn't have a single church that he was 
whiff. Like, it was all over the place. So eventually, he was let go from his position as a student pastor. And around this time, he went to a Pentecostal latter rain convention. And during this time, Pentecostalism was in the middle of this healing revival and latter rain movements. Um, So he very much liked how the sermons never really followed set scripts. There were no time limits. They could go all day if they wanted to. He enjoyed the atmosphere of the healing revivals and healing people from all of these illnesses. And he really just enjoyed that these churches were interracial at the time because that was something he really believed in. And so he actually convinced his, well, convinced, I will leave that in quotes, he convinced his wife to leave the Methodist church, saying that the latter rain movement would help him become a better preacher and that the Pentecostal churches um, more closely followed his views than the Methodist churches. So that was kind of the, the main reason why he wanted to make this switch. And so a couple years down the road, a new pastor was assigned to the church that Jones had been preaching at for a while. And... Um, a ban had been set in place on these revival or these healing revivals, which Jones did not like at all. So this led him to start kind of his own church. And he originally was going to name it <laughs> the community unity. Um, so that didn't last. <laughs> um, it then was called the wings of healing. <laughs> that's almost just as funny as community unity. Yeah. Right? I was going to say right. that's not much better no <laughs> it doesn't rhyme but it's still not great honestly i like community unity like a hundred times <laughs> right? better like that just flows it's just fun to say yeah right and i could just see like t-shirts where it's like community but then the unity is all in capital letters so it's like community unity but like the T's are also all crosses, like not actual yes. T's. <laughs> yes. We should go back in time and be part of his like propaganda team. Be like, you got this. <laughs> we'll be your marketers. Stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe in you. But anyways, only 20 people followed him from the previous church. So I don't know if that would have been a lot or not a lot at the time, but he at least had a bit of a following. Um. But that being said, he didn't have the financials to really support his visions and where he wanted to go with them. So he began raising money for this. And apparently, I don't know how accurate this is because I only found it in one source. Um, He would go door to door selling monkeys, like live monkeys, to try and raise money for the church. Um, Where where did he he get the monkeys? Yeah. I could not tell you. It was just like he used to go door to door selling these, and just how my brain was a random, yeah, a giant question mark when I read that because I was like, "Where are you getting the monkeys? Who is buying these monkeys?" Our like, wildlife forensics course is just making me question if CITES existed. Yeah, I hundred yeah, percent it didn't. No. Oh um, and so one of the things. Uh, That stood out most to everyone, kind of moving on past the whole fundraising, was that it was a very racially integrated church. And this wasn't common in the Midwestern USA at the time, like really at all. 
But after organizing and hosting a healing convention in 1956 alongside another reverend, he actually attracted thousands of individuals, and many of whom believed Jones to have very supernatural gifts in healing people. Um, but in one of the sources I read, it they all basically said, like, the survivors and his sons were like, no, he was just a con man and a fraud. Like, he would kind of go around the groups listening in on conversations about the people and then writing notes down. And then while he was up at the front, he would call those people out by name and like say their address and say what they will be healed from and all of this stuff. And they were like, oh my gosh, like no way. But all along he was really listening in. Um, But the wings of healing started to rapidly grow after this. And then it was then renamed as People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. But then shortened to People's Temple because that's kind of a mouthful. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I was like, that's not better. That's a lot. Nope. That's a lot for a (laughs) t-shirt. Like wraps around front to back just continuously. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I can see it. Um, But throughout the span of just under a decade, uh, Jim and his wife adopted many children, and they had a son of their own. His name was Stephen. I want to say Stephen. It's a PH with an A, so it could be Stefan, but I think Stephen. Um, That's what we'll go with. But in 1954, they adopted Agnes, a Native American girl, In 1959, I think it was, yeah, 1959, they adopted three Korean-American children, Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne, and this was also the same year that they had their own biological son, Stephen. Two years later, in 1961, yep. Um, So they adopted a kid named Stephen, and then they had a kid, and they also named him Stephen? No, sorry. So Stephen was their only biological son. They had a Stephanie. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I thought I heard you say that they adopted a kid named Stephen. No, then... sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. They no. had adopted many children and then they had their own son, Stephen. Oh, uh, okay. sorry. I gotcha. Confusing wording. My bad. Um, Two years later in 1961, Jim and Marcelin adopted an African-American boy, naming him Jim Jones Jr., and they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, apparently. They also adopted a white son named Tim Tupper, whose birth mother was a member of People's Temple, and he also fathered another boy, Jim John, um, with a temple member, Carolyn Layton. So I don't know if what happened there like if he's the biological father of this boy or the father had passed away and he just took it into his own hands to raise this boy with this member i couldn't find anything on it but this family called themselves the rainbow family and they hoped that this would show that everyone is equal before god And this was their way of like spreading it through their church and through the community that they, they accepted everyone by adopting like six not white kids. Oh, okay. So the rainbow refers to the fact that they were not all white. I was thinking it was a great way to tie in the LGBTQ community (laughs) and how, yeah. Okay. Anyway, 
<laughs> no, just no. It's the rainbow as in all non-white family members. I see. That would have been smart. I didn't read anything about the LGBTQ community, but um, you never know. Well, if everyone's equal before God, then they're equal. So Exactly. Exactly. I hope they'd be open enough to consider that in the 50s. I mean, if they were open enough to adopt black kids, I feel like they'd be pretty open-minded. Yeah, I never read... I've, like, honestly, in all of the sources I found, like, the documentaries, the book that I halfway read, um, and all of the articles, like, nothing came up about it. So I honestly have no idea. That's fair. Wouldn't wouldn't surprise me, though. (laughs) Um, But by the mid-1960s, Jones had moved People's Temple to Northern California, and by the early 70s, they relocated the headquarters to San Francisco. And after the move to California, he kind of drifted away from the traditional Christian teachings and moved moved, towards a blend of evangelical Christianity, New Age spirituality, and radical social justice. So I guess he was very well known um, to be a communist. So his goal was apparently communism, but he used religion as a way of making it easier for members to like understand and follow and I and digest communist views. Interesting. Which I thought was interesting because that doesn't sound very religious to me. But yeah, I could be wrong. <laughs> that sounds more political than religious in interest, but... Yeah, I, he had like, very, like, socialist and communist views with all of his stuff. Which I, yeah. So, that's good. Off to a great start. <laughs> um, But he became well-known in San Francisco, and I guess he would, like, weasel his way in with public officials and the media... So he kind of, like, had their backing on a lot of stuff. And he did actually donate money to several charities, and they would actually run programs to help those who were less fortunate. So they had a lot of, um, like, suppers and home, not homes, but, like, places for people to stay and all of this stuff. And so while the estimates vary in numbers of those who followed um, or who were a part of People's Temple at the time, it's thought that by 1977, he had gained a following about of about 20,000 people, which is a lot more than the 20 people he started with mid-50s. He was a powerful preacher, like in terms of gaining community. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. insane. Wow. And it would only like, well, not really only grow from there, but he had like supportive followers that would do, like they just were like, yes, this is only what I believe in. And a lot of them were very, like, idealistic youth. And the way that Jim Jones would preach, he he wanted, like, change to happen. He wanted to see change and integration and um, interracial whatever, like, throughout the world, basically. And so a lot of, like, young people who didn't really know where their path laid in front of them they followed him because they thought he could provide that path for them, which I thought was interesting. Um, but a lot of his devoted followers actually called him father. 
And he would compare himself to Vladimir Lenin. I don't know if you guys know who that is. I had to Google him. Um, he's a Russian communist revolutionary, a politician and political theorist. I had to Google. I still don't know who he is based off that Google search. Um, but yes, he compared himself to him. He would also claim that he was the reincarnation of figures like Christ and Buddha. Um, so that's good. That's good, good. And while in San Francisco, though, allegations and rumors began to spread, saying that members were being forced to give up their personal belongings when joining, members were physically beaten, and that fake cancer healings were being staged by Jones. So he just did not get a lot of positive media attention as the years went on. And former members um, would say that Jones would even have them sign over their paychecks to him. They'd have them give up their homes and even custody of their children in some cases. And from an article I read, it said, quote, elderly members handed over their social social security checks Working adults gave 25% of their wages to the church, and some signed over all of their property. Government investigators would later find at least $10 million in Swiss banks, mainly in Panama, and another $1 million in cash was recovered from Jonestown, end quote. So he had a lot of money that he was kind of picking and choosing from everyone. That is impressive. Too bad he burned the bridge with his mother, or like they're not whatever anymore because she didn't marry rich but she had a rich son she had a rich son and it's interesting too because when he was born lynetta would like knew she gave birth to a great like um a great young boy i forget the wording that they said but she like knew that he was gonna go far and do great things and i don't know if that's just like a mother being a mother and saying that about their kids but like she hardcore believed that and i guess to an extent it happened um he's not known for a great thing now but he at one point he seemed great yeah he had twenty thousand followers and 10 million dollars yeah yeah. he did great things he was doing pretty good at one point yeah yeah um So his response to all of this negative media, though, and all of this attention was that they should once again move headquarters to Guyana, Guyana, I hope I'm, I'm definitely not pronouncing it right, but I'm going to go with Guyana. And it was the only South, well, it is the only South American country that has English as its official language. So he basically promised his followers that they'd build a socialist utopia while they were there, and they'd create their own city and community, essentially. So um, some of his followers left in 1974 to establish what would be known as Jonestown. And this was an agricultural, wow, I can't speak, agricultural cooperative, apparently, um, in the middle of the forest in Guyana. And it was obviously named after Jim because he is a very modest and humble man. Um, He and over a thousand temple members soon joined them in 1977 and they moved people's temple to the middle of the jungle there. So while there, survivors 
had said it felt almost like living in an armed encampment or slave camp rather than a religious community. And they had to work long hours in the fields and they were actually surrounded by armed guards that patrolled them. And they were called the Red Brigade and they were basically like Jim Jones's bodyguards. Um, So while they worked, he also shared like his monologues and religious preachings over the speakers and megaphones for the entire community to hear as they worked in the fields. Um, But the negative allegations didn't stop there. They only actually got worse. So these allegations included physical beatings, especially if they questioned his authority, forced labor and imprisonment, the use of drugs to control behavior, and suspicious deaths. And apparently Jim Jones had a very bad drug problem, according to his son. Um, Apparently, uh, if he hadn't committed the thing he had done that I will discuss later, he would have been dead within a couple months because of his drug problem. So I think he was taking the easy way out. Yeah, probably. He probably just didn't want to see all of his followers or like have his followers witness him die and then like discredit everything that he said. So he's like, you know what? Let's all go together. Yeah, exactly. Um, So in addition to having sign over the checks and houses back in the States, um, he had also confiscated passports and medications of the members in Jonestown, and they weren't able to freely leave on their own accord. So it seems like a great place to be. Um, I don't know about you guys. Nice little vacation away. Yeah, that's only like... A little bit shady. Only Only a little. little. And to add to it, uh, apparently some members were asked to sign false testimonials that they had molested their own children. So this could be used as blackmail against them if they either decided to leave or had any ill intentions towards People's Temple or Jim Jones. Um, So... Double oh thumbs God. up for that one. Yeah. Wow. We love being held yeah. against our will. That's Yeah, that's I thought nice. the the way they went was bad, and I thought that's what they were known for. I didn't realize mm-hmm. how bad the living conditions were and for how long. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had created an atmosphere of fear, obviously, in Jonestown to control his members. And so they'd have drills called White Nights, And this would prepare them for any extreme, often life-threatening emergencies. So they thought that, like, they were safe from nuclear fallout that was going to happen. And the U.S. was going to go into this entire nuclear war and they'd survive. So these were, like, kind of prepping them for that. And so sirens and announcements would blare over the speakers, instructing everyone to meet in the pavilion. And sometimes there, they would participate in mock suicide drills in the middle of the night during these white night drills. So, yeah, anyways, <laughs> um, a U.S. congressman uh, got word of all of these allegations and heard from a lot of concerned members that they were being held against their will in Jonestown. So Leo Ryan decided to go investigate whether these allegations were true. So he was accompanied by four members of his delegation, a bunch of journalists and concerned family members. So around the time Ryan and his group were arriving in Georgetown, Guyana, Guyana, um, that was kind of the closest place. 
I don't know. Anyways, geography, sure. They arrived there. Um, the Jonestown basketball team um, was created, and this consisted of Jim Jones's sons and some other members. They were to play in a tournament against the Guyanese national team. So they were also in Georgetown because they had a tournament that same weekend or over those same few days. So Jones was originally against them going to play since he knew the congressman was going to be in town. But the mom, Marceline, made sure the boys left to go. And so when Stephen Jones, like I watched the documentary, he says when he looks back at it, like his mom most likely knew that this would have been their last goodbye. So it was a very emotional goodbye for them. Um, and so in Georgetown, uh, the basketball team was staying at a house that People's Temple owned. And so this acted as like a way station for people coming into Jones Jonestown. Um, so they were staying there and the congressman basically met them there, introduced himself, kind of made his way in. But Jones originally, like Jim Jones, originally was denying them entry into their encampment or their town i guess i don't know and they even had members sign a a petition to prevent him from coming in i don't know what that was going to accomplish but they all signed a petition um and after some negotiations though because they got a lawyer involved um jones allowed them to come in and he had all of the members rehearse what they were allowed to say when Ryan was present. So they had like however many days in preparation going over everything they could say. Jim Jones was like questioning him on every or questioning members on a whole bunch of stuff, making sure they got it right. And upon their arrival, they were surprisingly welcomed with dinner and a full night of entertainment, um, which I was kind of shocked by, but I guess you kind of have to put up a good show at that point. Um, so while they were there, though, several members quietly approached Ryan and the members of his party asking for help leaving Jonestown. So there was an individual, his name was Vernon. He remembers like writing a note, trying and like trying to pass it to a member of his party, thinking it was the congressman because the congressman hadn't been introduced at the time, but it actually wasn't. So he thought like his life flashed before him basically and was like, oh, great. Someone found out I'm trying to escape. But it turns out, like, whole families and, like, over a dozen people were trying to leave Jonestown, which kind of set something off for the congressman. So the next morning, many of them packed their bags and plans to leave with the congressman. And he was originally going to stay behind and wait with the other defectors since there wasn't enough room for everyone on the planes they had taken So he was going to stay, wait for another plane to come back, and then he would take them to go. But while he was in the pavilion and while everyone else was kind of packing up in the truck, um, Leo Ryan, the congressman, was attacked by a member of People's Temple with a knife. And that was kind of his deciding factor. He was like, "Mm, yeah, I think I'm going to go with the rest of them. Don't want to stay because of that. So he went. But as they were... Just about to head off, a last-minute member joined them on the truck, saying that he was a defector. People had their suspicions, but whatever. He went with them. He left. Um, The Yeah, so they left. 
and they arrived at the airstrip. They began loading the planes, searching everyone to make sure they had no weapons. Um, They were actually met with a truck full of several armed men from Jonestown, and these men began opening fire at the airstrip. So, or at the airstrip. I don't know why I added a T to that. Um, Some people were already on the planes, and they were about to take off, but a cultist named Larry Layton, he was the one who jumped on the truck at the last minute. He managed to sneak a gun onto the plane, and he began shooting the others on the plane. So he wounded two. I don't think he actually killed them um, before he was subdued by the other members. Uh, But yeah, so they all got off the plane. Um, Leo Ryan, a reporter and cameraman for NBC, a photographer from the San Francisco Examiner, and a female People's Temple member were all killed on the airstrip because of the gunfire. And the, the gunmen have actually gone back and, like, reshot them to make sure they were dead um unfortunately but 14 of the departing church members survived the ambush and they had run into the jungle and hid so a lot of them were quite wounded um but five of them were actually children and they were lost in the jungle for three days while hiding which is insane to me i cannot imagine that that's so sad yeah thankfully i don't think they were injured But they came back the next day, I want to say, to um, obviously see what had happened. Um, So while they were there, the kids were still hiding and lost in the jungle, which is terrifying to me. Yeah, that's so sad. Um, So the truckload of gunmen had returned back to Jonestown, and Jones had called for their final white night over the speakers as they were coming back. So he told the members that American soldiers were going to come for them now that the congressman was killed, that they were going to kill and torture the rest of the temple members. And he said that America no longer wanted them because of the congressman's murder. And so he used this to fuel their belief in everyone, basically, that taking their own lives meant saving themselves. He meant said that basically it was the best way out and essentially in the less painful way out. So everyone, after they were ordered to meet in the pavilion, he told them they were going to commit a revolutionary act and that revolutionary suicide was the only possible outcome. So large shipments of potassium cyanide were brought into Jonestown a couple days prior um, to this event. It was on November 18th. And they had mixed the potassium cyanide in with flavor aid, which was like a powdered juice mix. And with a whole bunch of tranquilizers. And surprisingly, it's not Kool-Aid, even though um, don't drink the Kool-Aid is what came from this whole massacre. Um, It's false. It wasn't Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Still similar, though. Same concept. Um, But he somehow acquired a jeweler's license, and that was how he was able to get these large quantities of potassium cyanide. How he did that, I'm not entirely sure. But regardless, he had these quantities and he had created like buckets full of these mixtures. And so the children were the first to drink the mixture and mothers and nurses would like feed it to them through syringes, basically. And if they didn't voluntarily take it, they were forced to drink it. So unfortunately, the children were the first ones to die out of the community. 
And the remaining members lined up to take a cup of the mixture to drink. And if they protested, it was either injected into them by a needle or they were restrained and forced to drink it. Um, Marceline initially, so the wife and mother, initially resisted and had to be physically restrained. But after the last child died, she saw no point of resisting and drank the mixture anyways. So out of all the temple members, Jim Jones didn't even drink the poison juice. He decided to have one of his members shoot him in the head with a single gunshot wound, single bullet, and that's how he went out. But over 900 people died that day. It was 917, I believe, 16, and almost 300 of those were children. So only, yeah. And I was going to put a picture on our source page, but I don't think it's for everyone to see um there if you look up obviously jim jones and people's temple and jonestown um there is a terrifying bird's eye view image of the compound and it's just littered with bodies on the ground like it's terrifying to see it's horrific um but it just kind of gives you a sense of what went on that day i Um, just find it Sorry, I can't get over the fact that a third of them were children. Yeah, yeah. And that they were forced to take it. Yeah. I. It makes me really angry that he didn't drink the flavor aid and he chose to just get shot. Like, if you're going to make people die, you might as well have the respect to die the same way. Yeah, he was not about that. And it's... um, kind of eerie there's footage and like broadcasts of the events so in some of the um documentaries you hear like the children crying as they're being forced to take it and it's just so eerie and so like saddening it just kind of breaks your soul and you're like damn this i hate people um but only 33 people survived the mass suicide murder So some managed to escape into the jungle, others hid on the compound, and several of Jones's sons were in Georgetown at the time, um, along with some other members for the basketball team. And although they were given orders to kill themselves there, so he had actually sent word to the house, um, the People's Temple house, they didn't go through with it, but a mother there did. She killed her two kids And she had her oldest daughter kill her, and then she killed her oldest daughter. Um, But it's believed that Jim Jones did this because he didn't want the congressmen, reporters, and defectors to tell their side of the story or to let word get out about what was going on inside the apparent utopia he had created. And so Larry Layton, the guy who um, shot the people in the plane... He was the only member of People's Temple to be tried in the U.S. for the criminal events that transpired because he was the only one that survived who was a part of this. Um, He was extradited, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison, but he was paroled in 2002. He's out? Yeah. He's just chilling. I don't know if... I assume someone came for him. I 
I have no idea. I just learned that he was paroled in 2002, and I didn't really dig into his life after that. But That's really scary. Being, yeah. After being like sentenced to life in prison in 1978, he was out in 2002. Was he charged, sorry, with a war crime or, like, terrorism? He... That... Okay, this is the thing... I think why he was out, he was charged with like wounding two individuals. It was something like silly like that. Um, let me just double check. So he was captured after badly wounding the two people. Um, yeah, so that's all that he was really charged for. Um, so he wasn't charged with war crimes. He wasn't charged with anything like that. It seems kind of weird that he, yeah. he didn't. No, I think he should have, but mm -hmm. it's kind of too late now to go back. But unfortunately, yes, he was paroled in 2002. And nothing remains to this day of Jonestown anymore except the remnants of a small rusting garden tractor, apparently. All of the buildings have been demolished and the jungle has reclaimed the space. So prior to the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, this mass suicide murder in Jonestown was the largest loss of U.S. citizens in a non-natural disaster. Oh my goodness. Which is baffling. And I know Baff I've been ranting for not ranting, but talking for some time. Um, but I found this, um, like, a website one of the survivors had created, and he talks about all of his stories and stuff like that. And he kind of went into um, – his name was Tim Carter. He w survived it. He posted this po um, article called Murder or Suicide, What I Saw. And so he basically talked about what the numbers were with who actually – committed suicide and who took their own lives or who were forced and like how Jim Jones basically coerced them to do this. Um, but he had to go back to the, to Jonestown to identify the bodies two days after the massacre. And oh he had noticed. Goodness. Yeah. And at that point, nothing had happened to the body. So they were just out in South American heat for two days and he just said it was like as traumatizing as the day that he witnessed the massacre i can't even imagine that's terrible especially having to identify them all like it's so fresh so yeah. fresh. like use pictures or something like you don't need to bring him back to the scene yeah anyway sorry um, continue that's okay i was just gonna say um a lot of the inject injection sites, so I guess a um, pathologist had said many of the sites were between the shoulder blades, but when he was there looking at the bodies, he had, they saw abscesses on like the left temple, the neck, back of hand, upper arm, lower leg, cheek, and like back of shoulder. So it was obvious that people were being injected against their will. Um... And so they estimate about 70 to 180 were forcibly injected, but that was only based on about 200 people that the pathologist could get to before the U.S. State Department took over. So, 
Um, that's quite a large number. And then he like talks about people who drank the poison believing that they had only two choices. So drink the poison or be shot by armed god armed guards, sorry. So he goes to ask, well, is that revolutionary suicide at that point? No, it was coerced. And then those who may have voluntarily drunk the poison based on the lies Jim Jones had told, they were told that the children would be taken from them, that the Guyanese defense force was on its way, that they were armed, they'd be shooting. If someone voluntarily takes their life um, based on the lies of someone else, he then goes to ask, is this really suicide? Or wouldn't the perpetrator of the lie be responsible for this? He then goes to ask or pose those who voluntarily drank the poison, excuse me, through months and years of conditioning, um, would this also be suicide? Because oftentimes they'd have these mock suicide attempts or these white knights, and they were these crises that they were manufactured by Jones himself. So he would like shoot fight like gunshots into the community um just to like scare them essentially so if one commits revolutionary suicide based on years of this experience is then that suicide so like he just poses a lot of really interesting questions that while it was said to be a revolutionary suicide and that's how it was claimed for a lot of the time it's a hundred percent slash like 98 percent murder because with the mentality that everyone had with them being forced and coerced to do it like you can't say suicide at that point you know what I mean yeah I totally agree that it's definitely murder and the guy who like bullied them and manipulated them into committing suicide should be held responsible yeah and like although he wasn't the one forcibly like injecting people with it he had his armed guards doing it and he had his devoted followers doing it so he was giving the commands and he was the one behind it all so he's the one held accountable i don't know i just think it should be called a mass murder in that case well Um, no like you that makes complete sense because it's like if it wasn't for the directions that he gave yeah they wouldn't have committed suicide exactly yeah they didn't choose on their own they were given a choice you die now or i kill you Exactly. Now that you mentioned that, um, I had read something. There was a so-called September siege in 1977. He had actually asked, um, there were about 700 people in Jonestown at the time, who wants to commit revolutionary suicide? The first vote revealed only two had said that they would, that they were for it. The following day, the total raised or rose to three. So... Like, 900 plus people weren't, like, this was a year before it happened. This was in 1977, and it happened in 1978. Like, how do you go from four people being for revolutionary suicide to over 900, with a third of them being children? Yeah. But anyways, that's my rant. I'm sorry I took up almost an hour. (laughs) I got very (laughs) heated into it. It's... I'm reading, um, I recommend uh, The Road to Jonestown, I believe it is. It's a book I'm reading right now. 
Um, yeah, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple, book by Jeff Gwynn, G-U-I-N-N. I really recommend that. And there's a documentary on YouTube for free called Paradise Lost. I also recommend that one. It's about an hour long, hour and a half. But it has, like, real-life footage of Jonestown and, like, the shooting that happened. How did they get that footage? Like, yeah. So, I don't really know how technology works. (laughs) But they did have cameras. And (laughs) I don't know how it was stored. But so, reporters had gone there and they had their cameramen. So, they had, like, video cameras. They were the huge ones on their shoulders. And so one of the um, journalists was recording as the gunmen came to them. And so it continued to record as they were being shot down. So like the camera just fell and it just continued to record. So it captured all of it. And then I guess they recovered. Yeah, they recovered the cameras afterwards and they developed the film. And then so they got all of the video that way. But, like, Jim Jones had agreed to interviews. Like, it seemed all hunky-dory while they were there. Like, they had pictures taken. They all seemed happy. They were doing interviews. And people were singing. And they were having, like, a great night. And then that happened. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, that is Jonestown. All right. Well, interesting. Um... Nicole, thank you so much for telling us about that. I, like many of us, I'm sure, knew like a really brief description of what Jonestown was, but I didn't actually know like the full history or who Jim Jones was and kind of why this happened. So this was really interesting to learn about. And it's something that I've really wanted to learn about for a long time. And I'm hoping that everybody else feels kind of the same way. Um yeah so just thank you so much and now we're gonna move on to journey who is going to tell us all about uh toxicology and specifically forensic toxicology so i get to tell you guys about forensic toxicology um i haven't really thought about it since third year university so i'm sorry if my information is not fantastic um i'm gonna start talking about toxicology and then like what it is and how toxins can affect us so that we can kind of understand how toxicology can apply to a forensic setting. So to kind of understand forensic forensic toxicology, we need to understand toxicology, what it is, how toxins affect us, and just like how science. Um, (laughs) Sorry, it's been a long week. Um, So toxicology is defined as the study of adverse effects of chemicals on living organisms. And within toxicology, there are kind of four things that we're trying to understand. And they are, we want to understand the biochemical impact of chemicals on living organisms. We are looking to diagnose and treat the exposure to toxins. Um, Toxicology studies dose-response relationships and also studies factors that influence toxicity. Um, Toxicology isn't really a new idea, as poisonous things have been around forever, or roughly 1500 BC. Uh, Poisonous materials are separated into three different categories, which are plant, animal, and mineral. 
And in the 15th century, there were certain professions that had a higher risk of poisoning. And so one of these professions is a hat maker, uh, due to their exposure of mercury that is used to cure hats. And so their vapors kind of resulted in a mad hatter, which is kind of where we get the mad hatter from Alice in Wonderland. He's a very accurate depiction of people who build hats, hat makers, um, being exposed to mercury. So like after their chronic exposure, they show signs of mercury poisoning, which is tremors, shakes, slurred speech, and hallucinations, which I'm not very familiar with the Mad Hatter, but that sounds about right. Um, and so Paracelsus is the father of toxicology. And so he kind of pioneered the use of minerals and other chemicals in medicine. And so it was his idea that is the dose that makes the poison or it's the dose that makes the poison, which means that the amount of substance taken will determine whether or not there's a healing or toxic effect on the body. Where like, if you take one Advil, it will cure your headache. But if you take 15 Advil, you will die. Um, So that was kind of his idea. And then by the 18th century, we had begun to manufacture over 10,000 chemicals. And so even though quite a few of those chemicals were being used positively, there were still some like phosgene and mustard gas that were being used very negatively. Um, And they were also discovering the negative effects of organic chloride pesticides. Um, And so specifically pesticides, they kind of led us to the two major events in the 1960s that kind of like alerted the public to the issues with such prominent chemical usage in our environment. Um, And so the first was the publishing of the book Silent Spring in 1962, and it outlined the adverse effects of pesticides on the environment and how they could accumulate and affect different um, organisms throughout the food chain. And then the second event was the morning sickness drug thalidomide and and it causing the limb deformities of newborn babies. That one is massive. Um, and then in the 1970s and 80s, we had a major call for like res- uh, federal responsibility and accountability, which kind of resulted in the creation of organizations dedicated to monitoring the chemicals and toxins in our world and our exposure to them, such as like the CDC and all of those fun organizations. Um So there are about seven roles of toxicologists um, because there's quite a few chemicals in our world. Um, So I'll give a brief description of all seven, but I'll only focus on the forensic forensic toxicologists. Uh, So first we have descriptive toxicologists who obtain toxicological information from animal studies. So a lot of our information about length of exposure and um, they kind of do all the tests that tell us how much of a chemical we need to die kind of deal. Mechanistic toxicologists study how toxins exert their toxic effect. Um, Forensic toxicologists provide toxicological information in support of legal activities. Environmental toxicologists are concerned with all of the toxic effects of a substance within an ecosystem. So they would look at more like how pesticides affect the animals living in the ecosystem. 
And then regulatory toxicologists, they compile and evaluate toxicological information to determine concentration-based standards for exposure. So they kind of determine how much we can be exposed to before we're harmed. Um, And then food toxicologists focus on delivering a safe and palatable supply of food to the consumer. So that like the FDA would be composed of food toxicologists. And then clinical toxicologists study disease and illnesses associated with acute and chronic exposure to toxic substances. And now I get to use a lot of big biology words. Um, And so there are three main routes of exposure to toxins, and they are inhalation, ingestion, and dermal absorption, or absorption through the skin. Dermal absorption is the most common route of exposure because your skin is everywhere. Like it's super easy to get a toxin on your skin. And even though it is a fairly effective barrier to absorption, um, if you have a cut or abrasion, it's much, much easier for the toxin to infiltrate. So, uh, and the nature of the chemical also affects the rate of absorption. Like if it's super corrosive, then it's just going to burn through your skin versus something that needs to kind of like soak in. And so an example of this route of exposure is the dermal absorption of hydrofluoric acid. Um, So when fluoride mixes with calcium from your bones or your blood, it causes your blood calcium level to plummet, which can lead to cardiac arrest because calcium plays a pretty influential or important role in the electrical activity and pumping function of your heart. So without it, your heart cannot pump. And it also dissolves your bone because your body is pulling the calcium out of your bones to make up for the deficiency in your blood, which is kind of interesting. And I learned on TikTok, actually, uh, this lady was pregnant and she was calcium deficient because the baby was literally sucking the calcium like out of her bones to make her own, like to make the baby's bones, which is like what happens. So that's why you have to take calcium uh, supplements when you're pregnant. But I was like, I didn't know that happened. It's kind of spooky. That's terrifying. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I also love TikTok is like the only source of information I get now aside from my university courses. And it's literally the only reason why I'm alive right now. (laughs) Right? I actually learn a lot from TikTok and I'm like, hmm, should this be my source of information for everything? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) And I told myself I wasn't going to mention it this episode, but here we are. Okay, so the next route of exposure is inhalation. And so it is the next common because the lungs are designed to make molecular transport easy so an airborne toxin can quickly infiltrate your body when you inhale. And so the toxic substances, once they're in your lungs, are then transported into your bloodstream via the alveoli in your lungs. And a common example of this would be inhaling carbon monoxide. Um, The third route of exposure is ingestion. My lecture note said that it's the rarest route of exposure unless the toxin is present in food. What? Which... Well, I mean... You're not gonna really, like, eat a toxin, like, just straight out of the bottle, but, like, if you do get, like, food poisoning or something... Yeah, that makes sense. I guess no one's, like, sticking their fingers in toxins and licking their fingers. Yeah, I think it... I think an appropriate way would be it's the most, like, difficult route of exposure because you can't just, like, release something that you breathe in or just spray something on their skin. They have to actually Mm -hmm. ingest it. 
<laughs> um, and also said that if it does happen, it's usually accidental, um, which is not the case for the Jonestown Massacre. This was the route of exposure used. Definitely not accidental. No. So. no. Um, so 90% of the absorption occurs in the digestive tract um, in the small intestine due to its large surface area. And the remaining 10% occurs in the stomach and large intestine. Um, another eg- example, other than the Jonestown Massacre, of ingesting a toxin is botulinum or botulism, which is found in honey. Um, and it is lethal to infants, which is why you can't give a baby honey until it's like two, um, because their digestive system isn't equipped to battle it. But adults can eat it, no problem. And then another kind of, like, lesser-known form of absorption is through the eye, or route of exposure. Um, I didn't really have a lot of information on that, other than it was pretty prevalent in all my notes. But it's also important to note that the vitreous humor within the eye is very useful for forensic toxicologists and medical examiners. um, Because it doesn't, like, decompose, really. And so it can tell you time of death and if there's any toxins that contributed to their death. Um, And now that I've kind of briefly covered how a toxin can get into your body, let's discuss how it moves and attacks us once it's inside. And I'm going to have more big biology terms, so get excited. The absorption of toxic substances has to occur prior to distribution and metabolism, before they're like spread about your body and metabolized. Um, And so since the cell membrane is selectively permeable, the absorption occurs through active transport or passive diffusion. Um, If you guys need me to tell you what any of these things are, please ask me. Yeah, so does that just mean like not everything can get through the membrane? So you it needs to like put energy into transporting across this membrane? Yeah, so passive diffusion is when a substance can kind of like move across easily. Like it kind of gets like sucked through from okay. one side to another due to the concentration gradient. So the cell doesn't use any energy. It's kind of like a drain. Like it just sucks it from one side yeah. to the other. Okay, And then... All toxins that pass through the skin do so through passive diffusion because they're small enough to, like, get through the cell membrane. And then active transport is when the cell actually uses energy to transport the substance across because it's often too large to move across passive transport. So there has to be a vehicle that brings a toxic molecule through the cell membrane. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um... And then once a toxin enters your bloodstream, it's transported around the body via your circulatory system to various organs where it's stored, metabolized, and then excreted. And there are four major storage sites for toxins, and they are the liver, the kidneys, fat, and bone. Really? Bone? Yeah. um, I I tell you all what they are. Okay. Yeah. Um, So your kidneys and liver... Um, they collect a lot of toxic substances because they are detoxifying organs. Um, so that one's pretty self-explanatory. And then fat accumulates a lot of lipid-soluble substances, so they can only be dissolved in fat. So if, like, a toxin is water-soluble, 
it can be absorbed in any part of your body, but if it's only dissolvable in fat, it can only become toxic once it's in your fat kind of deal. I don't... Okay, that makes sense. It's been a few years. That's my best guess. <laughs> um, bone, like I said, is the major storage site for calcium. And so when bone cal- or blood calcium levels are low, calcium is released from bone into the bloodstream. And then... During this exchange, calcium can be replaced with other cations like lead. And 90% of lead is found in bone and it can be there for decades. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. I knew it could so, like be stored in your body for decades, but I didn't realize your bone was. Bones were the main source of storage. Yeah, main storage area. Um, and then Me- another organ that is super protected from toxins is the brain. Because it has the blood-brain barrier, or BBB, um, which reduces the toxic effects of most substances um, and prevents them from getting to the brain because it's a highly selective semi-permeable membrane that only allows nutrients and other good things through, but stops all the bad things such as toxins from reaching the brain. And so... Kind of an example of the BBB in action is the difference between organic mercury and elemental mercury. So organic mercury is more toxic because its elemental compound looks more organic. So the body thinks it should go to the brain and it's allowed past the BBB. And so its lethal dose is only three milligrams, whereas elemental mercury is flagged as toxic and it's not allowed past the BBB. And its lethal dose is then 13 grams. So you need quite a bit more of it. That's a big difference. Yeah. 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 Milligrams to grams, that's a big difference. Yeah. Um, So that just kind of explains how the brain's protected more than other organs from toxins. I'm not going to talk too much about the metabolism of toxins because it's pretty complex. Um, So basically all we need to know is that the body changes the toxin to either a more or less toxic form in those organs. And then... Sucks for the bodies that turn it into a more toxic form. Right? No, thank you. (laughs) Um, And then after the toxin has been metabolized, it's now in a form that can be more easily excreted. And the rate of excretion is a very important factor when determining the toxicity of a substance because the faster a substance can be removed from your body, the less likely it is to have a negative effect on your body. And minor amounts of substances can be excreted in your sweat or breast milk or deposited onto inactive tissue such as your nails, hair, and skin, which kind of plays a role with when you collect hair samples, nail samples, and skin samples to test for any drugs or anything. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And so the primary organs that are involved in excretion are the kidneys, liver, and lungs. Um, Kidneys excrete toxins into urine. The liver uh, secretes toxins into bile and feces. And then the lungs excrete toxic gases through, like, exhaling. Okay, that's what I have for toxicology, but I have more about forensics toxicology and how it's relevant to the Jonestown Massacre. So, forensic toxicology is the application of toxicological principles to situations that may have legal implications. Um, And a brief history of forensic toxicology. uh, In the 1700s, professional poisoners were common, as we discussed at the beginning of me talking. Um, 
that's just where you have like a profession that results in you being poisoned, like a Mad Hatter. Um, white arsenic was also very common in the 1700s, and it was known as inheritance powder because you could slip a little into your parents' or partner's drink and inherit a lot. And its effect mimic cholera. So basically, you die of diarrhea. Oh. Oh. Not what you want. No. No. No, that's not the way to go. Um, so in the 1800s, there was a famous trial of Marie Lafarge, who ordered arsenic for a rat problem and then just put it in her husband's food and killed him, obviously. And so that was the first case where forensic toxicology was used. And it was the first time that a chemical test was then used to confirm a toxin present in the body. Oh, neat. Um, and the father of forensic toxicology, Matthew Orfila, was actually a part of the Lafarge trial. He kind of um, verified that um, arsenic was present because the main scientist did a test for it called the Marsh test, which is actually pretty cool. It's a really, really um, interesting test because it's super sensitive to arsenic. There doesn't need to be a lot present for it to like indicate it. Um, but obviously in the 1800s, it wasn't as good as it was today. Um, so this Orphala guy just kind of helped out. Um, and in the 1800s, there was also an increased development of chemical analysis methods and increased abilities to isolate and purify natural compounds. In the 1900s, there was a lot of developments, but none that were really like as groundbreaking as in the 17 and 1800s, as far as I know. Um, and so within forensic toxicology, there's kind of like three primary areas of interest that it can be used in, and they are post-mortem drug testing, so testing for anything after you've died, workplace drug testing to test if any of your employees have done drugs, and then contraband materials, um, so that would be like testing a suspicious powder to see if it was heroin or cocaine or just flour. Um... And so the best bodily fluids for analyzing are gastric contents, bile, liver, urine, hair, and vitreous humor, which makes sense because all of your toxins are being excreted into those things. And then once the forensic toxicologist has finished their analysis, they then have to infer what their findings mean. And so they have to find out the route of administration and whether the amount of toxin present was enough to cause or contribute to death. Um, and the highest concentration of toxins are usually found at the site of administration. And so if there was large amounts of toxins in the gastrointestinal tract and the liver, it would indicate that the toxin was ingested. So probably with the people of the Jonestown Massacre, if they had examined their GI tract in their livers, they would find that there was a lot of potassium cyanide. Whereas if there was high concentrations in their lungs, then it suggests inhalation, like inhaling the toxin, and then high concentrations in the tissue surrounding uh, like a dermal abrasion suggests an injection or dermal absorption. And so for the individuals who were injected with the potassium cyanide they would have, like, Nicole mentioned uh, to me, I think not on here, that there was, like, abscesses and stuff at all of their injection sites. So this would be, like, where they would test for that toxin. 
Um, that's pretty much what I have for forensic toxicology. Um, I didn't, I feel like we were kind of missing a lot because we learned this with forensic chemistry and forensic parasitology. Um, so it was kind of hard to give a background without keeping you guys here for like three hours. Um, but I did find some information on cyanide specifically and how it affects the body and how a forensic toxicologist would kind of be able to determine death by cyanide poisoning. So cyanide is a very famous poison and it can refer to any chemical that has a carbon nitrogen bond and it can be found in almonds, lima beans, soy, spinach, some medications, and it's even naturally made in our body. However, the deadly forms of cyanide are sodium cyanide, potassium cyanide, hydrogen cyanide, which is Zyklon B from the Holocaust, um, and cyanogen chloride. And so potassium cyanide I'll talk about specifically because that's what uh, Jonestown or Jim Jones used. And so it was like a crystalline salt and it's very, very toxic. Um, it's also extremely soluble in water. So it would be really easy to dissolve in flavor aid. And interestingly, when this form of cyanide is wet, it emits the scent of a burnt almond. And um, it will, I mentioned this later, but cyanide usually gives off the scent of a burnt almond even during autopsy. So like if you're at an autopsy and you can smell burnt almonds, it's highly likely that cause of death was cyanide poisoning. Do you think in that case though with autopsies cuz I've from what I've heard they're quite smelly because you are dealing with deceased individuals. Would the burnt almond be strong enough to like be noticeable through decaying human? I think think I feel like people who smell like regular decaying humans like like a medical examiner or um, a forensic pathologist would be able to like differentiate would be able to pick out a scent that's not quite right yeah but I think that if you and I were in there we'd be like this just smells bad I don't know where you're getting the almond scent from Um, at least that's my theory anyways and not everyone's able to actually smell the burnt almonds um, because it's thought that it's a genetic trait to be able to smell it I did not know that. Yeah. I really thought cyanide was just, it smelled like almond to everybody. Apparently not. And so I think... it's kind of like a, um, uh, what's the green... Cilantro. Yeah, that. Apparently it tastes like soap to some people if you don't have the gene. Yeah, both my parents think it tastes like soap, but I don't mind it that much. Oh my goodness, that's so weird. I wonder if the people who taste cilantro as soap cannot smell the almond in cyanide, in cyanide. or like the other way around. And I wonder, I wasn't able to find this, but I wonder if they can smell it during an autopsy, but not when it's in its natural form. Oh. Or if they can't smell it at all, because that would cause a lot of issues. Yeah, that would not be good. Yeah. Oh, well, questions for all you listeners. (laughs) So um, potassium cyanide inhibits cellular respiration, which results in lactic acidosis, which is when there is a buildup of lactic acid in your bloodstream. 
And so when you get sore muscles after like a super intense workout, uh, there's lactic acid buildup in your muscles. And so this is kind of like just an extreme version of that. And so uh, victims of cyanide poisoning will get like a red complexion because the tissues aren't able to use the oxygen in their blood because there's no oxygen in the blood. There's just lactic acid buildup. And so, yeah, I found that really cool. Um, and the effects of potassium cyanide and sodium cyanide are identical, apparently. And so the symptoms of poisoning occur within a few minutes after ingesting it. And the person will, like, immediately lose consciousness. And then they'll experience brain death and convulsions. And then death is caused by cerebral hypoxia, which is just when the brain isn't getting enough oxygen. Um, and uh, the lethal dose of potassium cyanide is between 200 and 300 milligrams. So not a lot. Oh, no. Yeah. That would, not they would have been given a lot more than yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so like a fun fact about potassium cyanide is that it can be really easily detoxified with hydrogen peroxide. Oh. Yeah. I don't know how that works. Um, don't eat cyanide and then drink hydrogen peroxide. That's a bad idea. Um, but if you have like cyanide and you spill it or something, you can easily detoxify it with hydrogen peroxide. Oh, interesting. That's super. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. And so that's like the best way to detoxify it according to the internet. Um, and learning more through our podcast than we did like in lecture. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I know it's a little sad, but <laughs> I also really enjoy sad. that we get to learn it by doing that. Right? Yeah. Like it's, I don't know. It just makes it more fun. Um, and so Nicole, you mentioned that he used his jeweler's license to get the cyanide. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he got the jeweler's license, but potassium cyanide is used for gilding and buffing jewelry. So they oh. would just like hand it over because he was using it for quote legitimate purposes but would they not put two and two together that he's living in the middle of nowhere in south america and most definitely does not have a jeweler's business on this agriculture agricultural uh what was it they said it was commune yeah um he must have falsified some other documents or maybe they were just like well, hey, what would his uh, mailing address be? <laughs> he might have had it. Go get it. He probably had it shipped to somewhere in the States and then had like a person on the ground in the States who then like shipped it to him in Guyana. Oh. Or they just had it shipped to Guyana because he was like, I'm a booming jeweler, like just looking to make some money. Yeah. Maybe into Georgetown, and then the people that were at their house, the people's temple house, had some connections. Yeah. But yeah, so that's how he got access to it quite easily. Um, and so I have some, like, more symptoms of cyanide poisoning when you're alive. Um, and so that's weakness, nausea, confusion, headache, difficulty breathing, seizures, loss of consciousness, and cardiac arrest. 
Um, and like every toxin, how you're affected depends on the dose that you received, the type of cyanide used, and how long you were exposed. And so to diagnose cyanide poisoning while you're still alive, um, they measure your met hemoglobin level, your blood carbon monoxide concentration, and your plasma or blood lactate levels. Um, and the first two are common when you inhale cyanide due to smoke inhalation because cyanide is a very common um, chemical that's released when things are burning down. And then the plasma lactate level is most is mostly used to confirm later that you were poisoned, so it's not like an immediate um, source of information. And then some symptoms of cyanide poisoning post-mortem. There's a pinkish, pinkish discoloration of your blood, and there's pink lividity, Um, You can smell burnt almonds and there will be like alkali burns in your gastrointestinal tract when cyanide salts have been ingested. So that's what would have happened again with um, the individuals at Jonestown. And so your blood, your stomach contents and your urine are taken for analysis and to confirm cause of death. However, the half-life of cyanide in your body is actually quite short. So the extraction and the analysis has to be done within the first few hours of exposure in order for it to be accurate. And since it's also naturally produced in your body, it can complicate the interpretation of cyanide results, especially if the body has been damaged by fire or is in advanced decomposition. Um, But yeah, that's all that I had. I could not find information on how a body is affected post-mortem by cyanide for the life of me. And I don't know why I feel like that would be a fairly easy like case study, but I guess would not. it just not have an effect because at that point your body stops metabolizing, your body stops processing all of this stuff. So would the yeah. poison still make its way through and have an effect? I kind of meant, um, we learned this in one of the classes, like how, You'll get, like, petechial hemorrhages around your eyes if you've oh, been strangled. okay. Like, what are the, like, gotcha. like what's the Tell-tale evidence signs. that they were? Yeah. Yeah, could not find that for the life of me. So this is the best I could come up with. Um, but that is cyanide poisoning and how it was used at the Jonestown Massacre. Kind of. That would be an awful way to go. Yeah, yeah. I heard it's uh, extremely painful and not very fun. I think it's added on my top five terrifying ways to die. Number one is still being burnt alive. I think oh, yeah. cyanide poisoning's quite up there, though. Not yeah, it it doesn't sound pleasant. Um, I'll give them that. <laughs> yeah, ten out of ten. Do not recommend. Um. Wow. Well, <laughs> thank you, Journey, so much for telling us all about forensic toxicology. Um. This has always been a really interesting topic when we spoke about it in class and even now when you're telling us about it. And I know this has been a recommended topic by a couple of our listeners, so I'm really excited to get to speak about it a bit more. Um, Yeah, but thank you so much, both Journey and Nicole, for telling us about both our case study and our science today. Um, If you tune in next time, you'll get to hear all about the uh, case of Mark Twitchell as well as the science of blood spatter analysis, which I'm personally really excited for because watching Dexter and seeing how blood spatter analysis is done is 
kind of what initially piqued my interest in forensic science. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, plus it's a Canadian case. So we're kind of getting back to our roots a little bit. Um, yeah, but if you go to our website, you're going to be able to find all of our sources and such as always. Um, but like usual journey, would you like to mention where they can find us on social media? Yeah, of course. Um, so our Instagram, our YouTube, and our Facebook is all at what the forensics. Our Twitter is at WT Forensics PC, and our website is whatthefrensics.ca. And if you have any questions about forensics toxicology and you feel like sending us an email, our email is whatthefrensics at gmail.com. Perfect. Um, thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of What the Forensics, and to leave us off, I don't have a forensic joke this time, uh, but I do have a Christmas joke, just because we're so close to Christmas. Yay! Um, it's pretty dumb, I gotta be honest. It's a really <laughs> They're dumb They're all dumb, one. it's okay. Okay, very true. What do you call a scary-looking reindeer? Um, I feel like this is going to be obvious. I know. I'm trying to think of, like, reindeer names to see if one of them is, like... What do you call a scary-looking reindeer? Is it just a scary-looking reindeer? Is it a caribou? <gasps> How? <gasps> oh, my oh, my God. God is, it, actually... is that the answer? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's There's amazing. No <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> God, yeah, I was actually gonna say it's a caribou. <laughs> oh my goodness, oh my I love it. That's amazing. I, I was second guessing myself. It. I was like, caribous aren't reindeer, and I was like, yeah, no, Journey, you just learned like a couple weeks ago, caribou are reindeer. This is the right answer. <laughs> oh my god! Well, you're <laughs> oh amazing. You guessed my joke, but in a way that's absolutely perfect. I mean, you're kind of that's meant to fantastic. Guess a joke. <laughs> that's amazing i love it okay well that has been another episode of what the forensics uh we want to thank you so much for listening and we hope you have a really great holiday season we cannot wait to tell you another story in the new year um this has been another episode and we'll see you next time bye, bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.